Hey, if, uh, if you brought your Bible today, we're in Matthew chapter 21. If you did not bring a Bible, don't worry about it. At Journey, every Sunday, we open the Word of God. We believe it is the will of God for the people of God, so we always open the Bible and do a little bit of a Bible study. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, everything I'll read from the Bible will be on the screens behind me, so it'll be super easy to follow along. If you have a smartphone, you can probably in 30 seconds download the Bible app. It's a great free app to have on your phone that gives you access to the entire Bible. But we're in Matthew 21 today, studying through the life of what we're calling King Jesus. Um, April has been an incredible month of ministry um, and mission at Journey. So just in the last seven days, you heard us say we had 120 people baptized um, last Sunday, one of the most incredible things I've ever been a part of. Uh, I've been in ministry nearly 25 years. I've never seen anything like it. I don't know if I'm in ministry another 25 years if I'll ever see something else like it again. Um, We had a team this week from our church serving with Samaritan's Purse in Little Rock, Arkansas, helping with cleanup for the tornadoes that uh, blew in there over the past few weeks. We had another team of 15 in the mountains of Guatemala in villages where we were doing medical clinics and working in schools um, where we've helped build churches. Literally, our ministry from last Sunday to this Sunday has been all over the country and all over the world. Why? Because Jesus has changed us and we want to serve him by serving others. That's what's happening at Journey, and the month is going to end on a high note, because next Sunday is going to be busy, um, but it's going to be important. Next Sunday, we end the month at 5 p.m. with what we call our Volunteer Inspire Block Party. So about twice a year, we gather our thousand volunteers together, and we do a special service just for our volunteers. We have dinner. We've got a free t-shirt. We love giving away free stuff at Journey for all of our volunteers, so kind of our spring t-shirt. We've got games and fun going on. We'll do a little bit of a work service. Um, Our elders and our staff will serve communion to our volunteers. Just our time to pour into volunteers who are always pouring out. So volunteers, I hope you can be here at 5 p.m. or any part of that you can make. We'd love to have you. We also have next Sunday during our 1030 service and after church what we call step five of our growth track. So in 2023, our goal has been to help every follower of Jesus basically go through like a Christianity 101, how to become a disciple of Jesus who can make disciples of Jesus. It's a one-hour kind of teaching session. Um, There's a card in your bulletin that you can sign up. Our goal is for everyone in our church to go through it this year. It'll happen on the four um, Sundays of the year where there are five Sundays in a month. You can click on that. You can register for the 1030 or the 1230. We'll feed you lunch, take care of your kids um, at the 1230, but we'd love to have you take an hour to go through that. Um, and probably one of the most important things we do in our student ministry every year um, is not something that students do at all. It's a golf tournament that our student ministry hosts for youth camp. So that's coming up the first week of May. We have our journey open. We do not primarily raise money through this from golfers. We raise money from it uh, through whole sponsors, through businessmen and women um, who are willing to make a tax-deductible gift on behalf of the the organization that they're in or that they run so that we can put your name in front of a couple hundred people um, who are playing golf, but more than that, so you can help send a student to camp who may not be able to go if you don't help them. Our student ministry probably has... Becca, do you think we have 100 kids in our student ministry whose mom and dad don't go to church or more? Way more? Lots of kids that we're reaching who are like first-generation Christians in their family. So when they go home to mom and dad and say, hey, I want to go to youth camp, it's $450. Mom and dad are like, we are not paying money to a church to do anything. So things like the golf tournament and people in our church who help are the way those kids 
get to camp. So if you're a businessman, businesswoman, you can sign up to be a, a sponsor for our golf tournament straight across the atrium. There's a little banner up there. Um, a lot of people say, I don't want to be a sponsor. I do want to help a kid go to camp. And they'll just go over to the banner and give them a $450 check and say, give this to a student to go to camp. So if you want to help in those ways, that is one of the ways we serve the students of our community and serve them really, really well. Um, we're in week two today of a Bible teaching series in Matthew 21 called King Jesus. And we are trying to learn how to follow King Jesus well as his followers. We started in Matthew 21 last week riding into Jerusalem with Jesus on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And we learned that the ministry of King Jesus is the ministry of sovereignty and omniscience. Uh, Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus is using everything in life for spiritual purpose and spiritual good. And we have to surrender to those facts if we're going to see Jesus in the midst of everything. We learn that King Jesus gives us the, the ministry of righteousness, which means he's good enough for God on our behalf so that we can show him reverence by trying to be obedient even in our brokenness. And we learn that King Jesus offers us the ministry of dependency. And as parents and grandparents, we keep bringing our kids to Jesus and we hope that dependency turns into a decision where they say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus too. We can't force it, but we see the ministry of dependence that we hope turns into a ministry of decision. At the end of Palm Sunday, Jesus left Jerusalem and he went out to a town two miles from Jerusalem called Bethany, where he stayed all night with three friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. The next day he came riding back into town and the rest of the chapter is a conversation that took place on that journey back into Jerusalem. I'm going to kind of break it down into four areas so that we can understand it, but really the first two verses summarize everything that we're going to learn today. I'm going to call them the big picture. In verses 18 and 19, we see the big picture of everything we're going to discuss today in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has left the city. He's coming back in. Here's what it says in verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city. You might underline those four words, back to the city. He was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. You might underline those four words. Immediately, the tree withered. So key words here, Jesus was going back to the city. Let's get some context. On Jesus' last trip into Jerusalem, he rejected the worship of the Jewish temple. He rode into town on Palm Sunday, he cleared the money changers and the tables that were happening in the temple courts, and he said, um, Scripture says my house should be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. We took that phrase, den of robbers, and realized in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah said, we make religion, we make church, we make spiritual things a den of robbers when we live the way we want to live on Monday through Saturday, and then show up Sunday and say, we'll be safe spiritually because I went to church. Jesus said, that is not Christianity. That is not following Jesus. If you try to live for yourself Monday through Saturday and then spend an hour in church on Sunday to say, now I'm safe spiritually, you have missed the entire point of having a relationship with Jesus. So he came in, he cleared the city and said, temple worship like that is not going to work for anybody. On the way back into the city, he sees a fig tree that has leaves all over it, and he's hungry. If it has leaves, it should have figs. He goes up to it. There's no fruit on it. It looks beautiful. It looks alive, but it doesn't have anything that will help anybody else. He curses it, and it dies and says, you will never bear fruit again. So on his last trip, he cursed the temple and said, this isn't where you're going to meet God anymore. On Jesus' current trip into Jerusalem, he would reject the Jewish nation as stewards of his ministry in the world. So the big picture is the Jewish temple is not the place where you're going to connect with God anymore. The big picture is the Jewish nation 
is not the people responsible to tell the whole world about God. Now, realize what I did not say. I did not say that Jewish people could not become Christians. As a matter of fact, the whole book of Acts mostly is Jewish Christians telling the world about Jesus. I didn't say Jewish people couldn't be saved. I just said the Jewish nation was no longer plan A to tell the world about who Jesus was. It's interesting that Jesus would curse a fig tree. Because in Israel, the fig tree had tremendous symbolism of God's blessing on the country. Um, If you ever go to Israel with me, I'll take, I think, 105 people from our church to Israel this year. Um, About 35 of those in June and July, and about 70 will go in November. Um, Our tour guide will welcome us to the land of springs, streams, and seven species. That's kind of how they introduce Israel to you. Hey, welcome from America to the lands of springs, streams, and seven species. Because in the Old Testament, when the people were coming out of Egypt and wandering around in the wilderness, Moses kept promising them that the land of Israel would be a land of springs and streams and seven species. Now, you and I know most of the value in the Middle East is found under the ground because what's under the ground in most of the Middle East? Oil, lots of oil. Israel's not an oil-really-producing country. Israel is one of the few spots in the Middle East where the value comes out of the ground from what is grown, not under the ground in the form of oil. So they knew they were going to some place that was different. Springs, streams. It's a place that God waters from below. It's a place that God waters from above. And the seven species they were told they would find in Israel were wheat, barley, figs, pomegranate grapes, dates, and olives. For those of you who are going to Israel, some of you teenagers, they will ask you our first day, do you know the seven species? That's what they are, wheat, barley, figs, pomegranate, grapes, dates, and olives. Um, Because many people in our church have some maybe more traditional Baptistic roots, this might not make a lot of sense to you, but there are a lot of um, very new microbreweries in Israel because they produce really good wheat and barley, and they make a lot of beer in Israel. Um, because they also produce a lot of grapes. They also have some of the best wine in the Middle East, I'm told. In Israel, I don't drink um, beer um, or wine. I'm not saying you shouldn't, just not in excess, please. But um, Israel would be known as a place of spring streams and all of these great things. The phrase that you will have your own vine and fig tree, we find all through the Old Testament. It means this. Um, God said, when you finally have rest, every Israeli family will have their own vine and fig tree. It means this, the country will have prosperity and you will have personal freedom. George Washington loved this phrase, vine and fig tree so much that we find it found, uh, we find it more than 50 times in his writings to people and he called Mount Vernon his own personal vine and fig tree. It meant to him that his nation was prosperous and it meant that he had personal freedom. The temple was the symbol of worship The fig tree was the symbol of a spiritually fruitful nation, and Jesus said both of them are broken. Last week, the temple was broken. This week, Jesus sees a fig tree that looks like it should give life to other people, but it doesn't have anything for anyone, and Jesus says, you are cursed. Let you never bear fruit again. In Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, we read a parable that really tells us about Jesus' mission and a whole lot more about what we're going to read today. Jesus said there was a gardener who had a fig tree that for three years hadn't grown any fruit. So he said, cut the thing down. And a gardener came around and said, give me one more shot. 
Let me dig around it. Let me water it. Let me put weeds out. Let me put fertilizer in. Let's give it one more shot to bear fruit. And if it doesn't bear fruit after this year, we can cut it down. But let's try one more time. This was a picture of Israel during the ministry of Jesus. For three years, they had been rejecting him and not bearing spiritual fruit. And his cross, his burial, his resurrection would be his final act of ministry to produce fruit on this tree that was the Jewish nation. And when it would be barren, when they would reject even his death, burial, and resurrection, he would say, we're going to have to move on to tell the world differently about Jesus. Let's summarize it this way. Because of Jesus, the Jewish temple would no longer serve as the mediator between God and his people. And because of Jesus, the Jewish nation would no longer be the primary messenger of God's salvation to the world. Because of Jesus, you would no longer go to a place to find God. You would go to a person, his name would be Jesus. And because of Jesus, you would no longer have to be born into a specific nation to be one of God's people. Through Jesus and his Holy Spirit, everyone was welcome to become one of God's people. The remainder of the chapter is just a conversation, two parables, and a realization of the big picture that I just presented to you. So let's move to the conversation, verses 20 through 27. Now that we know the big picture... Here's the conversation. Starts with the disciples, gets to some spiritual leaders. It says, when the disciples saw the fig tree cursed and withered, they were amazed. How did that wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So one metaphor about how powerful God is one spiritual reality about how powerful prayer is. Verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts again. Remember last time he was there, he tore him up a little bit. And while he was teaching, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, he's talking about John the Baptist. Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask, why didn't you believe him? If we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they will hold that, was, that John was a prophet. So they answer, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Not just a conversation, two conversations. I'm going to look at the second one first. A conversation with disciples, a conversation with the religious leaders. The conversation with the religious leaders shows us how powerful the conversation with the disciples was. So let's start with the phrase, the question, who gave you authority to do this? The official spiritual rulers of Israel were hoping to expose Jesus' unauthorized leadership. They were hoping to say in front of the crowds, this guy has no credibility, don't listen to him. They asked him this exact same question his first year of ministry in John 2.18 when he came and said, I'm doing something new. They wanted to know, who gave you authority to do this? Here's what you need to know. Here's the background of the question that they were asking. In the generations preceding Jesus, any rabbi could ordain one of his followers to be a rabbi. But that led to so much different teaching on what the Torah said and what Judaism was. It led to such a wide span of what was biblically true or not true that the religious leaders of Israel said rabbis are no longer able to ordain anyone they want to ordain and they built a national board and said the national board that they ran, the chief priest and the teachers of the law, we are the only ones who give people spiritual authority now because we got to make sure that it's right. What they were saying to Jesus is, who gave you the ability to do this because it wasn't us? And Jesus, instead of answering their question, asked them a question. Now, when you study 
history from 2,000 years ago, you'll learn that education was normally done through dialogue, not by direct teaching, which means you would answer a question with a question so that somebody could uncover the truth rather than giving people answers you were giving them an opportunity to uncover the truth for themselves. So they said, where'd you get your authority? And Jesus said, I could answer that question, but I would rather you understand this truth for yourself. So here's my question. Um, John the Baptist, where was his authority from? Heaven or human origin? Did you guys ordain him? Or was he kind of outside your span? Heaven or human origin? Jesus was going to expose the official spiritual rulers of Israel for no longer considering God a supernatural authority in their life. What they were saying is we really are the ones who make the rules and tell people what they can or cannot do spiritually. So who told you you could do this? And Jesus said, well, I could tell you that God told me to do it, but instead I'll give you a question. Who told John to do what he was going to do? They knew the answer was God. They knew that if they said that, then Jesus could say, well, God told me too. So they instead said, you know what? We don't know. We don't know what the answer is. And here's what happened. The religious leaders refused to acknowledge a spiritual power or authority that did not originate with them. They had religion that they had made up. And because they had religion that they made up, they had religion that had no spiritual power in their life. We talked about the weaknesses in your life. Let me say this. When you have some religious activity in your life, you probably will not experience the power of God. But when you have Jesus in your life, you will begin to experience the power of God. See, Israel in their past had made up some religion that lacked power. Israel in its present in Matthew 21 had made up religion that would not even acknowledge that there was power. And the Apostle Paul said the church of the future will drift this direction too. Religion is so much easier than a relationship with Jesus, but there won't be any spiritual power in it. Look at what Isaiah said to the people 700 years before Jesus. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. They're just making up stuff to make themselves feel religious, but there's no spiritual power in their life. In Matthew 21, Jesus is like John the Baptist. Where did his power come from? And they're like, we really don't want to answer that question. Paul would tell Timothy, this will be the church of the future 2,000 years later. Mark this, Timothy. There's going to be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that's just on Facebook last week. Verse 5, <laughs> right? Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Don't have anything to do with people who will not let the power of Jesus invade their life. Please listen to me. Some of you in here who are followers of Jesus, Christianity is more and has more for you than some religious activity. The power of Jesus is available to you for the things you're going through in your life that are making you feel weak. Let me make some statements 
and then give you the truth of God's word. You don't have to be sad forever. You have the power of God. You don't have to be angry forever. You have the power of God. You don't have to be afraid forever. You have the power of God. You don't have to carry the pain of regret your entire life anymore. You have the power of God. You don't have to act like a jerk. The power of God can change you. You don't have to settle for a bad marriage. The power of God can bring hope. You don't have to give up on your kids away from God. The power of God is still chasing them. You don't have to surrender to your addiction. The power of God can break through. You don't have to live anymore in your sin. The power of God can give you strength. You don't have to do it on your own. The power of Jesus resides in you through the Holy Spirit. Religious activity changes nothing. The power of Jesus changes everything. Amen? Like that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is like, you've got all this religion, but you're ignoring the power of God. Some of you need to step into supernatural faith for the things that you continue to struggle in and just begin to trust God. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, if you believe, you'll receive. He's not saying curse trees and throw mountains. He's teaching his disciples you have to depend on supernatural power for spiritual progress. There will be points in your faith walk where you are stalled and you can't go a step further without the power of Jesus through prayer, through fasting, through his word, through spiritual community. We learned last week some things that can be discouraging to prayer, honestly. As a matter of fact, every time in the early days of my faith journey where I heard about omniscience and sovereignty, they made me not want to pray. Because I thought, if God already knows everything, why do I need to tell him? And if God already knows what's going to happen, why should I ask him to change any of it? If God is omniscient, and he is, he doesn't need me to tell him anything. If God is sovereign, and he is, he's going to do what he's going to do. Why should I pray? What's the point of prayer? Here's the point of prayer. Spending time with Jesus. That's the point of prayer. He already knows what you're going through. He most likely knows what's going to be the outcome. But when you spend time with the person of Jesus, you receive the power of Jesus. In John chapter 5, we meet a man at the pool of Bethesda who Jesus walks right up to and wants to give breakthrough power. Do you want to be healed of your ailment? For more than 30 years, he'd been paralyzed. Do you want to be healed? And the guy says, don't think that's for me. Jesus today is knocking on the door of some of your hearts saying, do you want a better marriage? Do you want your kids to come back? Do you want hope? Do you need courage in this health struggle that you're going through? Do you need to figure out how to be generous even though things are tight spiritually? And a lot of you, instead of saying yes, are saying, I don't think that's for me. You've given up hope that the power of God can change a circumstance, can change a soul, and you need to lean into the power of God. Let me give you a challenge for those of you who need breakthrough in an area of your life. Go to the calendar tomorrow, April 24th. Count 40 days into the future. And every day for the next 40 days, ask God to make his power evident in a specific area of your life. And on day 41, look back. And I can almost guarantee he will have done that in some way. Maybe not in the way you're asking. Maybe not in the way you're expecting. But if we lean into the power of God, Jesus says, if you believe, you'll receive. Not dead trees and thrown mountains, the power of God in your circumstance. 
Give it 40 days of commitment and devotion. Ask God begin to move in power and watch what he will do. Tremendous conversation that led to two parables. Let me tell you two stories Jesus said that are kind of proving my point. Parable number one we pick up in in, uh, verse 28. Jesus said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which one of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw the power of God... You still did not repent nor believe. So here's the parable. Two sons. One's a good son. One's a bad son. Um, The bad son looks like a good son. The good son looks like a bad son. I'm going to start with son number one because one of the sons is a picture of the spiritual leaders and they missed it completely. Son number one is a picture of the Jewish leaders. It represents those with the right spiritual answers but no spiritual action in their lives. We all know people like son, son number one. Their Facebook, their Twitter feed are filled with things that are the right things to say, and their life is filled with things that are the wrong things to do, right? We all know people like that. Son number one was the Jewish leaders. Um, It's a picture of God saying to his people, I need you to go, go live on my mission, and they're saying, yep, we've got it, and then they do nothing. Son number two are represented in those open to the ministry of John the Baptist, because remember, we're still talking about him, and Jesus. These are people who at first glance have the wrong spiritual answers, but they have the correct spiritual actions. They're people who come to Jesus and say, I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the Bible. I wasn't raised in church. I was raised in a really broken, dysfunctional environment. Um, If there is a Jesus way to live life, mine is completely upside down. That's like first connection with Jesus. But if you will help me, I'll do my best to follow you. Jesus says, be son number two. Because son number two, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the outcasts spiritually of the world were coming to John the Baptist saying, the whole first part of our life was wrong, but we would like to redirect that. And John was like, the kingdom of God is open to you. The first group was saying, our whole spiritual life has been lived right. And Jesus is like, okay, now here's what I want you to do. And they're like, no, we don't want to do that anymore. So Jesus wants us to be son number two. Note the irony in the story. Jesus not only gave them the cheat sheet for the test, he gave them the test, and they passed the test verbally, but by their actions still fail. Which son do you want to have? The son that says, I'll do it and doesn't, or the son that says, I'm not going to do it and doesn't? And they were like, the one who does, actually, the one whose actions are right is better than the ones whose answers are right. And Jesus is like, exactly. And then they gave right answers and wrong actions again. Please understand that your actions Monday through Saturday serve to prove whether or not you really believe the answers you talk about on Sunday apply to your life. Let's today just look at the answers we have given and see whether or not they're true in our life. Are we answer people or action people? We sang three songs before our Bible study time today. The first song was a song called Won't Stop Now. It had this line in the song, it is the right answer. I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. You said that. Do you mean that? Like Tuesday morning when God like 
speaks to your heart and is like, dude, like, are you ready Monday through Saturday to do whatever God wants you to do? Or is that just a Sunday thing that you talk about? Because we gave the answer. The question is, will we give action? Second song, House of Miracles, with a beautiful baptism montage. We sang this phrase that Kendrian gave to us before the song. Um, I bring everything to the feet of Jesus. Really? Because you actually look like your arms are tired of carrying things. You really bring everything to the feet of Jesus? Because it looks like your hands are still full. You really bring everything to the feet of Jesus? Because it looks like your backpack is stuffed. Is that just an answer we give on Sunday? But we don't have that action Monday through Saturday? The last song we sang was called Wonderful Name. We sang this phrase, what could separate us now from the love of Jesus? That's our Sunday answer. Our Monday actions, somebody cuts us off in work, that separates us pretty quick. Somebody cuts us off in traffic, that separates us pretty quick. Kid wakes up sick, that can separate us pretty quick. A bad email, a bad text message, a bad interaction at work. Our answer on Sunday is, because I follow Jesus, there's nothing that can separate me from God. Our actions the rest of the week are literally everything separates me from feeling God's presence in my life. Answers are action. Son number one or son number two? Let's be son number two. Our sinful, broken nature will always be overcome by the spiritual action we take to fight it. Let's be son number two. Parable number two, let's pick up in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come and let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Once again, they got the answer right, but the actions were wrong. He's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. He'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Parable number two is centered around verse 38. They wanted the inheritance for themselves. And the inheritance they were trying to get, I call it this way, the sin of the Jewish leaders was the sin of Eden, and it was Satan's best power play to Jesus. The sin of the Jewish leaders was we can have God's best on our terms and on our conditions. We can have what God wants to give us, but we can have that our way. That is the power play of Satan, and it is the sin of Eden. That was the first thing Satan tempted humanity with. In Genesis chapter 3, God said, have everything in the world but this one thing. Don't eat from this tree in the center of the garden. Um, Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, because I want you to be obedient to me. And if you eat from it, you're going to die. And Satan told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen, you don't have to listen to God. You can have everything God wants you to have, and you can have it your way, not his way. In Matthew chapter 4, this was the temptation of Jesus in Satan's power play. The third temptation of Jesus. Jesus came so that the kingdoms of the world might be connected to God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Satan's power play, he's doing it today in your life. You can have the promises and the blessings of God without giving God authority in your life. 
Satan's power play is you can have every good thing God promises, but you do not have to do it his way. You can do it your way. I would say that this is one of the one of two major threats to the church in America today. Pastors and teachers and leaders and authors and bloggers who will get up and say, you can have everything God wants you to have and you do not have to do it his way. You need to understand that is not what the Bible says. That is Satan's power play in your life. And I want to leave this graphic on the screen for a minute so you can apply it to your own life. Because it's not just a threat to the church, it's a threat to Christians. Here's the question. Where is this conversation playing out in your spiritual life right now? Where is Satan whispering to you? You can have all of the promises and blessings of God in your life, and you don't have to do it God's way. Where right now, real time, is this conversation happening for you? I think it happens a lot of times in family. I think in marriage. I think a lot of Christians desire to have what God promises them in marriage, but they don't want to serve one another. They don't want to live for God. Um, They don't want to work through hard things. I think there are a lot of Christians who desire to have everything that God has promised them for marriage, but their way, not God's way. Just a little of God sprinkled in. I think this happens a lot in parenting. I don't know any Christian parents who don't desire for their kids to have all the promises and blessings of God, but we're trying to figure out how we can get all the blessings and promises of God in the life of our kids without doing anything God tells us to do as parents to prepare them for that. Danielle and I, some of our uh, best friends are 10 or 15 years older than us. We very specifically tried to befriend the next generation so that we could ask, what did you do with our kids when they were their age that you would do again or not do again? I want to tell you this, and I want to say this very specifically, living in this Lee Summit School District, um, and I'm not making a statement, but I am making a point. I've not talked to any parents in their 50s who now have kids in their 30s who say the greatest regret of my life was that my kid picked up that library book at their public school. I've not talked to one Christian parent who's said that, and I've been talking to him for decades. Almost every Christian parent I've talked to in their 50s has said our primary spiritual regret are all the spiritual distractions we allowed our kids to participate in. The ball fields, the ball courts, the dance uh, stages. um, We allowed our kids to be so busy. We did not make church, youth ministry, youth camp, mission trips a priority. We just kind of hoped that when it all settled, like the dust settled, like they would love God, and we missed it. Almost every parent I talked to in their 50s says, I wish I would have spent a whole lot less time pursuing the things of the world because it really distracted our kids spiritually. Are you right now desiring all the blessings and promises of God for your kids, but putting like their spiritual priorities, fourth, fifth, sixth on their checklist? If there's nothing else going on, then we're going to get them in front of God on Sundays. How about in your finances? I desire all the promises and blessings of God on my finances, but I'm not going to use any of what God is giving me in this season for what God is doing in the world. All the promises, all the blessings, but none of the authority. What about in your friendships? What about in your faith life? I want God to be so present to me, but I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to worship at church. I'm not going to go to prayer services. Like, See how this works? This plays out in our life real time. Satan's power play. You absolutely can have everything the Bible promises you, and you can do it your own way. That's been his line from the beginning, and that is the story of this parable. The parable, in the parable, the owner of the vineyard is God. 
The vineyard is the spiritual salvation of the world. That's what is growing. The tenants were the nation of Israel who were supposed to share what the vineyard was growing with the world. And the outcome was they rejected working the vineyard for the God of the universe because they wanted it all for themselves. So Jesus said, what's going to happen at the end of this story that I've just told you? Matthew 21, 41, the religious leaders rightly said the owner is going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. He's going to rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of crop at harvest time. Let's really kind of hone in on the truth of this parable real quick. Purpose, posture, promise. The purpose of the vineyard, produce spiritual fruit that could serve a spiritual life to the world. That was the purpose of the vineyard. God says, I want the world to know me and be blessed by me. So I'm going to, I'm going to produce this kingdom and I want you to share it with the whole world. One of my favorite Old Testament verses about the mission of the nation of Israel is Zechariah 8.23. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations are going to take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. God said, I am raising up the Jewish nation so the whole world will say, God is with them, I am with them. And you're not pointing the world to me anymore. The purpose of the vineyard is to help the world know that God wants to know them and give them life. The posture of the tenants, they neither recognized the owner or cared about the purposes of his vineyard. They neither recognized the owner or cared about the purposes of his vineyard. And the promise and heart of God revealed through this parable is to put spiritual life, the spiritual life of Jesus in the hands that would recognize him and share him. If I believe one of the greatest threats to the American church is a church that tells people you can have all of God's promises and you can do it your way, I think maybe a secondary threat of the American church is this. When the church becomes for insiders rather than for outsiders. And we say, we've got all of God's goodness. We've got all of God's blessings. We've got all of God's message. But it's not really for you. It's not for you if you're a certain color. It's not for you if you're a certain ethnicity. It's not for you if you're a certain political party. It's not for you if you're a certain age. It's not for you if you dress a certain way. I think a secondary threat of the American church is to believe that Christianity is like an us thing versus them thing. And we don't receive the message and then share the message. That is what the nation of Israel had turned into. We're going to keep it to ourselves. In 1 Peter 2.19, Peter, one of the primary apostles of Jesus, would say, you're a chosen people speaking to the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Listen, Peter says, church, you are God's special possession, but you have God's special possession. Share it. You are God's special possession, but you have God's special possession. Please share that with the world who does not know it yet, because you are the special possession. You have the special possession, so share it. The religious leaders heard the conversation, had the conversation, heard the parables, and thought, man, it's just not for us. So we see number four as we close the rejection and dejection of the kingdom leaders in verses 42 through 46. It says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord did it, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. 
and they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Last week, we heard the crowd singing Psalm 118, verses 25 through 29. Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally, the crowds of Israel, two million strong, were chanting that Jesus was the Messiah who had ridden into town. This was the day before this conversation took place. So Jesus goes to that exact same psalm, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The verses before the verses that said that the whole nation is going to praise Jesus. And Jesus said before the psalmist said that, he said this. The stone that God has chosen was rejected by his people. So you're going to cheer, here comes the king. But ultimately you're going to reject me. And it's interesting as we study through this because it says they knew and they looked. The Jewish leaders knew that Jesus was rebuking their lack of faith, but they refused to receive it. They knew and they looked, but they did not look within. They knew Jesus was saying they needed to grow, but instead of looking within and saying, what are my next steps? They look without and said, we're going to have to get rid of this guy. Literally, they would say this. I think the only choices Jesus is giving us is follow him or kill him. I think those are only options. He's made it really, really clear that we can't be like half in, half out. Like he's saying that he gets all of us or we're going to have to kill him. And they got it right. That, that was the answer. Jesus is like, the deal is all of me or none of me. C.S. Lewis, the great English thinker who did a lot of kind of from atheism to Christianity, radio broadcast during World War II to try to help the people of England have comfort in a God who was paying attention, has a book out called Mere Christianity that is a, really a series of those radio talks. And in it, he talks about the options Jesus gives us to have him in our life. And C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So Jesus says, you will either worship me or you'll kill me, and they said, we'll kill you. What we learn from this parable is that Jesus is either deliverer or destroyer, based on how you receive his spiritual rebuke and spiritual invitation. In John 14, 6, he says he is the way to life for all who would believe in him. But for John, in John 5, 22, he says final judgment will be his for those who reject him. If you fall on Jesus in your brokenness, you will receive healing. But if you reject Jesus in your hard-heartedness, you will be crushed by the judgment of God on sin. John 14, 6 says he's a deliverer. John 5, 22 says he's the destroyer. He will be either your deliverer or your destroyer. The question is, which one will it be? The good news is it's your choice. 
You can receive him and be delivered. You can reject him and be crushed. But it ultimately is in your hands, just like it was in the hands of the Jewish leaders. What I love about this text that is kind of laced throughout is in this rejection of old kingdom leaders, there is this picture of new kingdom leaders. Every time Jesus says you're being rejected because you don't do X, Y, and Z, he's saying the people who receive me will do X, Y, and Z. So we close today with a picture of what I call followers of King Jesus. There's four things followers of King Jesus will do, and after I read the list, I'll give you an opportunity just in a moment of prayer for you to figure out which ones you need to start doing or do better or do more or do at all. From today's text, we learn that followers of Jesus are praying people who are dependent on the power of God, not just religious traditions. Coming to church can get you so far, but the power of Jesus is the only thing that gets you all the way. Followers of King Jesus who are people who are obedient to what they know. Listen carefully. Their first answers and their first instincts are normally wrong because they're sinful and broken. But they will always follow what they can understand spiritually because they love Jesus. Number three, followers of King Jesus are people who have a mission to serve Jesus and to share Jesus. They don't just believe it's all about them and nobody on the outside is welcome. And followers of King Jesus are people who have received the message that they're sinners and they actually agree with that. But they've accepted the invitation of Jesus as their savior and now they are spiritually alive. They are humble spiritually. They are hungry spiritually. And they are surrendered to the truth and the mission of who Jesus is. We started this service today by saying followers of King Jesus celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done. They volunteer to serve in that mission of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. But more than anything, they're surrendered. Because on their own, their soul is always weary. And with Jesus, their soul can always be full. For those of you who have never been to Journey, we close our service by giving you an opportunity to just ask yourself some questions and to answer those questions in your seat in a moment of three minutes of prayer that just allows everything you've heard to kind of become very personal to you. The first question that we'll ask today will be which of the four things in the list of the followers of Jesus do you need to step into? As you read that question and look at that list, Listen to the Holy Spirit inside of you say, that one. For some of you, the Holy Spirit is going to say, that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. It's going to be all of them. When you get to the end of that list, just say, all right, got it. Because when you open up your heart to begin to have a conversation with the God of heaven, that is when prayer happens. So I'm going to pray. We'll put three questions on the screen. They'll roll for 60 seconds each, and I'll come close this in prayer before we dismiss this. God, open our hearts and our minds to a conversation with you that right now will become a time of prayer. Speak to us, Lord. We're listening. We want to respond and take steps forward in our faith. Help us. Help us to see what you want us to see in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.